0: I believe firmly that if I were known to be gay, I'd lose all my friends, I'd lose all my respect, I'd lose all my business capability. I may well be eased out of a company, eased out of everything. So I stayed there, probably stayed there longer than I realized that was necessary. And what I hadn't recognized as the world was changing.
1: Hello, ladies and gentlemen, and welcome to another episode of Crazy Money. This is your host, Paul Ollinger, but you knew that. It is a great day to be alive, and I'm coming to you live from Atlanta, Georgia, where I'm doing my best to carpe some diem and gather some rosebuds. I hope you're doing the same, because you've only got 24 minus whatever hours it is today left to make your day extraordinary. So one of the ways you can do that is by sticking with me and listening to this interview with an incredible gentleman by the name of Lord John Brown. Lord Brown is the former CEO of the company BP, and he has one of the most extraordinary personal and professional stories that you will hear this year of our Lord 2021. Let me tell you something that Lord Brown's mother used to always share with him as a kid Never tell anyone your secrets because they will surely use them against you. And she would know because she was an Auschwitz survivor, and most of her family was murdered by the Nazis in the concentration camps during World War II. I'd say this suspicion was very well earned. Her son did follow her advice to keep his secrets safe until he was a 59-year-old, and when his personal secret, the fact that he was a closeted gay man, was exposed by an ex-boyfriend in the British tabloids. The revelation resulted in a terrible media storm and Lord Brown's immediate resignation. Just like that, after 40 years of service to his company and keeping his secret safe, he was out of a job and out of the closet. Keep in mind that in the few years before he was outed, Lord Brown had been knighted by Queen Elizabeth II, named to the House of Lords, he had won the UK's Most Admired Leader Award four times in a row, and, as if that's not enough, BP stock had risen by a factor of five over the course of his 12-year tenure, during which he rebranded the company and engineered the mergers with both Amoco and Arco. So why, after such an accomplished career, do we focus today on his sexuality? Well, I'm completely interested and sincerely committed to exploring how our success, our personal identity, and the process of discovering who we are are all intertwined. And there's no story I've heard quite like this one. I found out about his book, The Glass Closet, when I was on Amazon poking around and it recommended, you know, if you like this book, you might like this book. I saw The Glass Closet and I read the description. I'm like, oh my God, I have to meet this man. I want to talk to him and hear what it was like in his brain and his heart when he was going through such a traumatic personal experience. And I'm glad I did on many levels because what an amazing opportunity to speak to an extraordinary human being. But also in reading The Glass Closet, I was reminded of what gay people in general and gay professionals specifically have to deal with in their daily and corporate lives. Like, I don't think about these kinds of things because Like a lot of you, I just sort of feel like, oh, well, gay marriage is legal in the United States. Well, everything's cool, right? Well, not really, because there are dozens of countries in the world where being gay is still a crime, and about a dozen where it's still punishable by death. And before reading this book, that had never really occurred to me. The logistics of doing business in a global economy where you can be arrested for being you— That's kind of a buzzkill for your career, right? Can you imagine what it would be like if your sexual orientation prevented you from having a fair shot at making a living or getting a promotion or as simple as going to see a customer in a region where you might be killed? Obviously, I'm talking to the straight people in the audience right now because the gay people in the audience are like, yeah, I can imagine it. I've been living it for as long as I've been working. It really made me think about things I hadn't ever thought about, honestly. And that's just the part about being gay. There's so much more in this book and the other book of his that I read called Beyond Business, which goes into great depth on how oil exploration and extraction takes place. And I gained a much better appreciation for the incredible complexity of the politics, physics, weather, environmental concerns, terrorism, that all play a part in getting crude oil out of the ground to the refinery and into my car. Well, my old car. I drive an electric car now. Here's more about lord brown john brown baron brown of mattingly served as bp ceo from 1995 until 2007 when he took the company's helm it was still called british petroleum from which he oversaw the rebranding to bp but that name change was only one of several major changes he oversaw at the energy giant he also engineered mergers with amoco arco and major exploration projects around the globe his accomplishments and accolades are far too numerous to list here But I'll mention just a few. He's the former president of the Royal Academy of Engineering, former chair of trustees at the Tate Gallery, and has served on the boards of Intel, Daimler-Benz, and Goldman Sachs. He's the author of five books, including The Glass Closet, Why Coming Out is Good for Business. He holds a BA in physics from St. John's College, Cambridge, and earned a master's degree at Stanford. I want to thank Lord Brown for the gracious manner in which he entertained the questions from this earnest and mostly unknown podcaster, I hope I did a fair job, and I hope that you, dear listener, will share this discussion with anyone who might benefit from hearing from it. Ladies and gentlemen, this is Lord John Brown. Lord John Brown, welcome to Crazy Money. Thank you. Lord Brown, will you take me back to early 2007? How was your professional life going?
0: My professional life was going fine. BP had recovered from an accident at Texas City two years previously profits were in good shape, the company was doing well, and the renewable energy business, a leading indicator of what to do because things had to change uh, with carbon dioxide, was developing. My private life was in a very different position. I had been a gay man, I was a gay man, in the closet for a very long time. I was getting up 60 years old, and i wanted to stay in the closet for reasons we can go into. But in May 2007, I had tried to bottle up uh, with a series of injunctions, a story which a previous uh, boyfriend of mine had sold to the Daily Mail group. And I failed. It came out. It was a scandal of power, politics, lies, all the things that uh, newspapers like. And I concluded at that moment uh, that I had to resign from BP because I would have become a campaign by the newspaper and that would be no good for me and no good for the company. It was the wrong thing to do. So I resigned without asking whether I should or shouldn't. I walked out of the front door of BP and that concluded my entire career in BP. I walked out to the throngs of the global press who then chased me for three days on motorbikes and long telephoto lenses and kept me well tucked away in my apartment in London. And after three days, as the saying goes, I became tomorrow's fish and chips. (laughs) The The newspapers were used to wrap up fish and chips.
1: What did it feel like to wake up the day after the story broke?
0: I think in order to answer that question, I should go back and tell you why I was in the closet this long. I was born in the 40s. For those who've seen the latest uh, TV drama, It's a Sin, if they thought that that was a portrayal of bigotry and prejudice against gay people in the 80s, they should try the 40s, 50s, (laughs) 60s, and
1: 70s. Boys' school in the 50s in England wasn't a very welcoming place, I assume.
0: No, no. I mean, you know, the whole atmosphere was a very homophobic atmosphere, very homophobic indeed. And of course, until I was at university, it was actually illegal to be gay and do something about it. To go and have sex with another man could end you up in jail. And it may well end you up in the hands of a blackmailer who said, well, we could send you to jail. So the atmosphere was terrible. That was one reason I stayed in the closet. The other one was my mother who had been through and survived the Holocaust, she was in Auschwitz, kept banging on at me saying, remember, remember, never tell anyone a secret because they will surely use it against you. And then she also would remind me, never be an identifiable member of a minority because when the going gets tough, the majority always hurt the minority. Mm. These are two important and probably enduring values or enduring bits of advice. So that, combined with the overall environment, said, stay in the closet, throw away the key and stay there. And I did. And I believe that if I stayed in the closet, then I would be safe. And if I came out, I'd be unsafe. I, of course, ran two lives, a public life and a deeply private life, which I tried to hide away, which was fine. Nobody knew who I was. As time went on, of course, more people knew who I was than I knew who they were. <laughs> right. So it became more dangerous. Could threaten your job, could do all sorts of things. So I think I did learn about how to read people pretty quickly. But I kept a very deep, deeply held secret life and a public life where I was effectively asexual. And I, I believe firmly that if I were known to be gay, I'd lose all my friends. I'd lose all my respect. I'd lose all my business capability. I may well be eased out of a company, eased out of everything. So I stayed there, uh, probably stayed there longer than I realized that, that was necessary. The reason is that I've convinced myself about the appropriateness of what I was doing. and What I hadn't recognized is the world was changing after the 90s. The day after I came out, I said, I've lost all my friends, I'm losing all my business contacts, I have nothing and I will start again somehow, I'm pretty resilient, only to find that I was flooded with emails of support, and letters of support. In those days, people wrote genuine letters and they came to the letterbox and phone calls were remarkable. So that was a moment of realisation that maybe I had read this wrong and actually, people weren't rejecting me. Actually, after three days of hiding away from the paparazzi, I walked out to the King's Road to do some necessary shopping. And what was surprising was the number of people who stopped me to shake my hand and say, we're right behind you. Well done. Good for you. And I thought to myself, gosh, this is remarkable. Actually, it was something i basically broke down. I couldn't control myself after that. And so I did a little shopping, went home and <laughs> thought about it all. And I thought about it and said, well, i have just got to start again and let's see what happens. And remarkable things happened. I made a whole lot of new friends. Uh, my old friends treated me differently with great respect and wanted to know about, you know, what I could do to make it easier to come out, people to come out. I met the partner that I still have after all these years, and the list of things went on and on. I changed all my business activities. I got rid of many of the appointments that I had and started again. So I had a second life.
1: You resigned from some boards or were asked to politely ask to not come on? I, I think the word was
0: politely asked. <laughs> <laughs> uh, but uh, made it possible for me. In those days when you were on boards, you had to, and still the case, actually, of many boards, if you change your principal employment, you had to reapply to stay on the board. Mm. And that gave plenty of people say a reason to say, well, actually, you're no longer CEO of VP, so why don't you leave, you know?
1: But there were some boards that wouldn't hear of you resigning. What was the makeup or what was the attitude of the people on those boards of the organizations that would be consistent that allowed them to see the bigger picture
0: there? Well, I think they need a lot of confidence, and I think they need to feel independent. Uh, I think a lot of boards, a lot of people, a lot of organizations, and I saw this and say when I was interviewing people to write my book, uh, The Glass Closet, a lot of people say, well, you know, we really can't have gay people on the board or gay people uh, selling our products because our clients might not like it. Our clients might not like, like it. it. No. They may not like it either, but they transfer the responsibility to clients, customers. The boards of people who have very independently minded directors, confident to say, well, if they don't like us, we don't like them. Then they say, what's wrong? You will stay. And I was quite struck by, for example, the Royal Academy of Engineering, very prestigious, a national academy of learning in the UK, Uh, I suggested I resigned, and the uh, trustees instantly came back after having had a meeting to say, you cannot possibly do that. You must stay. This has got nothing to do with your capability as president and everything to do with the meaning of diversity. So I really have been eternally grateful for people like that who show some strength of character and commitment to a set of values that they actually use in practice. And it was one of the reasons I was eventually persuaded to write this book, The Glass Closet. I was quite reluctant to do it until one of my friends, who was the publisher at uh, Random House at the time, said, uh, you really need to do this because if it helps one person, it's a good job done. So I said, well, I'll talk about my story, but I'll go and ask a lot of people what they think too. And that's what I did. A striking point is how when people were consistent with their values, employers, organizations, how these decisions about diversity and inclusion were easier to make. They stood by this key point that it's about human rights. It's about the values of an organization. It's about values of an individual. It's about their rights to be individual wherever they are, and to be themselves. And that's, to my mind, a very important thing to remember about the LGBT plus, can I say community, group of people, that they have equal rights to other people.
1: Well, I know I'm not the target market that you're trying to help, but I can tell you that it certainly helped me see and understand the world a little bit better. So I appreciate you writing the book. One of the things that it opened my eyes to was the cost that homophobia imposes on business. Any new employee to a McKinsey or a Bain has to answer a case interview question. So I've got a case interview question for you, Lord Brown. If you were to calculate the global economic cost of homophobia, how would you go about doing that?
0: Uh, I'd simply take 1% to 2% of total returns from uh, the corporate sector and say that's probably the cost. It's huge.
1: How do you arrive at that number?
0: Well... A lot of these long-term academic studies seem to indicate that profits rise by two percent, two absolute percent, profit margin, by two absolute percent, if inclusion is a key plank of a company's life. It's about teamwork. I think that most companies would agree, and most leaders would agree, that to engage their staff engage their staff in a team deeply to the purpose of what's going on and everyone to believe they're a member of that team creates a far better result. In fact, studies show that the higher the engagement, the higher the profit. The reverse is also true, that if people think that they're threatened as team members, maybe because they're in the closet and nobody's quite sure who they are. And when people say, why don't you bring a wife? And there's a gay man who says, well, actually, I don't have a wife. What they have to say is, I'll be delighted to bring my husband. Or a gay woman can say, I'll be delighted to bring my wife. But if you can't do that, then you feel there's a barrier between you and the team. And it changes the dynamic. Somehow, business has a big social side to it. I don't mean having tea and coffee and gossiping. It's about being part of society. And there are groups of people uh, called teams that really have to rely on one another and bring themselves to the workplace as they really are. If they don't do that, engagement's down, profit's down. So that's how I come up with my one to two percent. One
1: of your early posts in your career was in 1969 in an oil field 650 miles north of Anchorage above the arctic circle this couldn't have been an ally rich environment at the time did you fit in with the other guys what was that like
0: i kind of did because i was first of all i was actually the youngest person there i was the i think one of the few brits there were a few brits and we worked uh, two weeks on two weeks off two weeks in anchorage alaska and two weeks close to point barrow above the arctic circle doing field work
1: Anchorage was the sunny break from the oil field.
0: (laughs) I do remember one of the two things that stick with me. Number one is when it was dark and cold, which was half the year, and it was always cold, but it was deeply cold, uh, you had to dress up with uh, Arctic Parker and Balaclava, everything. And you froze like a statue because instantly it was like being freeze dried. You just instantly froze and you had to sort of keep banging yourself to be able to move around. And this was a pretty scary thing to do. And you mustn't touch metal with bare hands because you leave your hand behind, (laughs) all sorts of things like that. Secondly, I remember the cabins being steam heated. So it did make people slightly damp when they went out. But the most important piece of entertainment was eating very sweet donuts, And for the first time in my life, I gained about, I should think, 10 kilos I think, in my time there. <laughs> anyway, it quickly went.
1: The point in asking that was for 40 years in a very male dominated industry, you couldn't bring your entire self to work. And in fact, you had to take extra efforts, emotional, logistical, to keep your identity hidden. How much of a cost did that impose on you emotionally and physically?
0: Well, it's very difficult to say. It certainly was a constant, a constant way of life. It was hardly an anxiety. It was I trained myself to behave this way.
1: Like a to, spy, you said.
0: It was. It was like James Bond, you know, with two identities. Uh, one is a public identity. So that was John Brown, the person in the oil business, correctly dressed, correctly behaved, confirmed bachelor, and then in a very deep secret life, John Brown gay person who wanted no one to know who he was. And I kept these two things quite separate. And it became almost a way of life. It was the second nature. And that was easier. And it was kind of fun, actually, when I was young. So long as no one knows who you are. The moment someone knows who you are, the risk factors go up. What I did learn is how to read people, sort of very quickly assess what they were thinking, who they were, what they were going to do. In the end, the risks are still there. and You have to go deeper and deeper into uh, a secret life. And that's why I ended up making a boyfriend of an escort that I'd got, because that was the only way I could find people. It wasn't an excuse. It's just the way I decided to do things. And that caused the whole problem. I mean, he sold a story to a newspaper. So... Uh, it that was a terrible error of judgment, a terrible error of judgment to uh, become the boyfriend of uh, an escort. So it was a terrible error of judgment to expose him to some of my life so he could tell lots and lots of extraordinary stories.
1: Hey, everybody. It's Paul. While I have your attention, I want to ask you for a favor. You know how much I love doing crazy money, and you know how committed I am to exploring the connection between money, happiness, work, and meaning through the lens of my guest's expertise and or money journeys. Well, today's episode is a pretty special one, and so I want to ask you the favor of sharing it with somebody who would benefit from hearing it. Now, that could be any kind of person. It could be a young gay professional who will be inspired by the courage of the generation of gay professionals that went before him or her. It could be a person you know that might need to think about the world a little bit more broadly, a little bit more charitably, or it could just be somebody who would find the story of someone who went through something like what Lord Brown went through to be inspirational and uplifting. So if you have a minute, Click forward and email it to individuals or post it to your social media channels. I really would appreciate it. I love having you here as part of the Crazy Money family. Have a great day. Keep listening. You mentioned in the book several times that you should have come out earlier in your career, but at a certain point, you reach a level of responsibility where you are the representative of tens of thousands of people doing business all over the world in some of the most politically and religiously conservative societies on the planet. It seems like, well... At a certain point, it's too late to do that.
0: It is. I I speak for myself. I invested a lot of time and energy in constructing the, the house which I was living in, which had these two lives. I'd got used to it. And actually, I was being consistent with myself, continuing to carry on as John Brown, the public figure, John Brown, the secret figure. I carried on way beyond when it was realistic so to do. Actually, when I wrote my book, I took it to a literary festival. Guy got up to the audience at the Q&A session, said, I'm a 40-year-old man, I'm in the oil business, I used to work for a competitor, and I have to tell you that we all knew you were gay. (laughs) The only problem was none of us were brave enough to come and tell you you were gay. Mm. And I thought in that one statement, it summarized everything. You know, we were all playing our role. I was playing a role and everyone kind of knew what role that was. No one said, and we carried on.
1: So is it hard when you're the CEO of such a large company to get people around you who will be brutally honest with you?
0: They're very honest with you on business. I think my team was, deeply honest and quite brutally honest on business strategy operations appointments but there are some places people don't go and actually it's i uh, they were all men instead me. mm. i often think to myself if i had a 50 50 gender balance whether actually someone would have come up and said john let's just talk about this because it's fine and we really want to help you through this And I think that actually all men in a place probably behave – well, they do. They behave very differently from a proper mix of genders. There's no doubt about that.
1: You know, one of the things that struck me in this book is that this happened only 13 years ago. This is really close to where we are today, and yet we've made a lot of progress. But I think as importantly to be aware of is that we all kind of congratulate ourselves for the progress – that we've made as a society, but there are still, and this was an eye-opening part of the book, and I'm reading it as I'm flying to Kenya, by the way, for the holidays. And it reminded me that there are still dozens of countries on earth where homosexuality is illegal, including 10 or 11 where it's punishable by death. So this is a grave situation for the leader of a company. And to say in retrospect that, well, he should have just come out is a gross misunderstanding of the situation.
0: I think uh, coming out is a very personal thing. It's different for every single person. There's no one size fits all. To come out, you have to feel safe, safe about your environment, and you have to think it through. Now, a lot of people, I remember when I was writing the book, I'd meet people, they'd say, well, you know, everyone in my company should come out. You say, really? (laughs) You know, Uganda? What about that? You know, should you come out? Because if you do, even inside the office, when you leave the office, you're gonna get beaten up. You might even be killed. Right. Is that responsible? Is that safe practice for a leader with their staff? No. So safety first is really important here, I think. I think what you have to do is make it possible for people to come out, and you have to be careful in places where they cannot come out. And you should discuss it with people, you know. I remember There was a statement I made saying, well, I'm very happy to send gay people to Russia. I want them to understand what the consequences of this are and that they need to behave within the rules and laws of Russia, not within the rules and laws of the UK or the US. So while they're there, they have to be very disciplined, very cautious, very careful. The uh, Russian government complained against that statement uh, saying I was meddling with their internal affairs. I was just making sure that people understood when you're in a country, you're a guest. One person cannot change the mores or the customs or the laws of the country. The CEOs can try, you know, they just give a little pressure. If it's intolerable where people are persecuted, then you have to choose whether you're going to do business there or not. That's a tough choice, but you have to make it. Which
1: brings me to an interesting point, what I consider to be interesting. We'll find out if you and the listeners do. But it dawned on me as I was reading your book, Beyond Business, that when I go to the gas station, I put my credit card in, I pull the handle, and my car magically fills up with gas. It's simple. And yet, getting fossil fuels out of the ground is to say that it's highly complex and capital intensive would be a gross understatement. So, using the Cusiana field in Colombia as an example, can you describe some of the technical and political and societal externalities that you're dealing with when you begin a project?
0: So, in 1989, BP discovered an indication that there might be quite a big oil field in the middle of the Llanos foothills in Colombia. At a time when Colombia was wracked with narco-terrorism, And it was uh, unsafe, really, for people to walk around uh, anywhere, because you might well be kidnapped and ransomed. However, the oil field which was being discovered was a super giant oil field. And so we concluded that we could try and develop it, and we would have to take appropriate precautions. There were hundreds of things to do, and most of them really started with the relationship we had with the locality. People were very concerned that we were using their land without compensating because that had happened in the past with governments and big business and things like that. They didn't like that. The government had a lots of environmental laws that were in place and never been enforced, and they were suddenly being enforced. And we weren't quite sure where we are, were at any one time. We managed to get through that. Then we had to protect our staff against guerrilla and that required us to think about how we do that. Meanwhile, the government said, well, why don't we use the army? And I said, we don't do that sort of thing. And they said, well, could we perhaps uh, we'll put the army around, but you have to pay for the barracks. And so we agreed to that. And then, of course, they asked for night vision, binoculars and helicopters. And we said, no, that's too much force. We don't do lethal force. The this went on and on. So eventually we built this oil field inside a high security perimeter. The company lived inside a barricade in the YANOS. Meanwhile, we barricaded our people in. and We had to deal with the and make a relationship with the communities around us. So we had a contradiction in terms. On the one hand, we said we're open for business. Come and talk to us. On the other hand, no one can get in because we had a high security fence around us. So we had to build our relationships in a very complex way, building relationships to get the right workers, to get the right hearts and minds, to actually make sure that people, when we paid them, were allowed to keep the money and not uh, some Mr. Big took it away from them. Right. We learned a lot about how to be a part of a country which was in great difficulty, had to build relationships with what are now called all stakeholders. Meanwhile, the technical challenges were quite tricky. We had to build a huge pipeline uh, from the middle of Colombia to the coast at uh, Cartagena, and we had to drill oil wells through very complex uh, terrain and complex geology to make all this work. We managed to do it in the end. It's one of many challenges like that, whether it is working uh, with different communities in Papua, trying to uh, understand their historic land rights and how not to abuse them, how to work with them, how to stop people deforesting around an activity that we were doing or overfish the bay that we were using as a port, or whether in the case of building oil fields in Azerbaijan, in the historic sites that originally had oil in Baku a long, long time ago, these were offshore fields which still are producing how to do that in a post-Soviet era and build a pipeline through Georgia and Turkey at a time when there was a lot of turmoil everywhere. So maintaining relationships, understanding the politics, understanding the geopolitics, understanding how to be part of a community, as well as the engineering challenges of thousands of miles of pipeline, drilling wells offshore building Offshore platforms and places which hadn't built offshore platforms like Afro. So these are just the complexities of the oil business. And it doesn't always go right. (laughs) You have to remember that uh, you've got to correct yourself, learn and surround yourself. I mean, yourself being the company, surround yourself with people who really know what they're talking about. What do
1: you wish critics of the oil industry appreciated more fully? And what do you think the oil industry should be doing to continue to improve their role as global citizens?
0: So, I have no doubt that uh, the oil and gas industry were far too late to come to the table to do something about climate change. In 1997, I stood up at one of my alma mater's at Stanford University and said, We have a problem with the climate. There's a real problem with the amount of carbon dioxide in the atmosphere. This was a long time ago now. And the oil industry is at fault, and we must do something about it. So I committed BP to doing something about it. They were small steps to start with. We had targets. We met them. The rest of the oil industry really didn't come along. In fact, uh, the American Petroleum Institute were very negative. They said, well, you know, BP's just left the church, whatever that meant. So they were late coming to the table. And I think that is the very big problem that they created for themselves. They divided themselves from the society of which they are part. It's better to actually be around a table with people who want to do something and be constructive about trying to reduce carbon dioxide than saying, well, it's not a problem, which they used to do for a, a long time. So that set them back a long way. I think most people know that we're going to have to use hydrocarbons of one form or another for quite a long time. The question is how much? And I think that's the big debate. Right now, I would say that the oil industry has to think about its role. It's going to be different from the past. The past is not an indicator of the future. They will be needed, or put it like this, at least oil and gas will be needed. Who provides it? Remains to be seen, but the vast bulk of all the growth in the world, the growth of energy and the replacement of some of the dirty hydrocarbons, all of that's a brand new industry, huge, huge new industry, which is transforming the way in which we live so that we can get down to net zero carbon emissions. And the oil industry can either be part of it or they will be pushed to one side. There is no doubt about that.
1: Do you drive an electric car?
0: I do, actually. I will confess. I drive two cars. One car I haven't driven for a year. I think it's still okay. It's a gasoline, petrol car. It's in a garage, and it may never come out of the garage again. Who knows? The other one is an electric car. It's a Volkswagen electric car. It's two years old, which means it's kind of out of date already. Mm. I have been involved with changing the energy mix for a long time. Been running one of the world's biggest renewable energy funds. I'm an investor, private investor in plenty of companies that are trying to do just that change the energy mix to a low carbon, zero carbon energy mix.
1: What accomplishments at BP are you most proud of?
0: First is the speech in 1997 at Stanford and all that went around it and the things we did, which I think began to change the way in which uh, oil and gas companies were going to behave.
1: Do you think that speech put a target on you that wasn't helpful as your career became more controversial later on?
0: Yes, definitely. But when you stand up and say something, I guess, you know, if you don't want to have a target, you better keep the head down. <laughs> Right. And so, yes, indeed, it, it did that. Secondly, I think uh, probably another thing that put a target on me was the creation of a super major uh, where I believe the economists of scale and getting the best of the best from, many companies together. I started that trend by emerging with Amoco in 1999. And I think the third thing is BP's attitude towards diversity and inclusion. The work was no means finished, but I would argue that people's attitudes towards equality, inclusion, diversity is never finished. And I think that we began to make some good strides, improving the gender balance of management, which is very important, beginning to open up senior positions to people who were not Anglo-American, but from all parts of the world. And those were important steps. I remember giving a speech on this to, uh, I think, a conference in Berlin, it was, where I made a statement that BP was going to offer same-sex partners, equal access to benefits, because it was good for access to talent and improving the way in which BP would therefore recruit around the world. So the very next day, the Guardian, I think, ran a headline which said, BP chief to recruit gays.
1: (laughs) Of course, of course. How else would you report
0: that? That certainly uh, sent a shiver down my spine. That was really the beginning of a, a slight realization that things were changing. I do think, you know, we've come a long way. The glass is definitely half full. Half full, but not fully full. To keep it at least half full, we have to have constant vigilance because it's so easy to slip back. It's so easy for bigots to be in the ascendancy. We must do everything to stop that because it's not just LGBT plus, it's not just trans, it's not just gender It's not just race. It's all of it combined. And when one slips, everything slips, in my view. We have to remember this is, you know, how people are. is an intrinsic human right, the right to be who you are and not to have to conform to someone else's idea of who you might be. That's a great right, and we should fight very hard for that.
1: And that that right is actually very consistent with doing good business.
0: It absolutely is. You know, Good business is about doing business not just today, but doing it for a long time and doing it to have impact as well as profit. It's really important uh, to do something which is worthwhile. In the end, great companies do something worthwhile. They produce, uh, sometimes maybe people will trivialize it, but they do actually produce a better product, a better monstrap, a better product. And they do it again and again. Humanity, therefore, improves on the basis of that. And in order to do it again and again, they need to be part of the society in which they exist and from whom they get permission to do what they are doing. Remember, being a company is a privilege. You get certain rights. And in exchange for that, you need to be reflecting society as a whole. So you should do things. You must do things. If you're going to survive for the long term and do one good thing after another, you have to do things in line with what your stakeholders expect and do them consistently and correctly.
1: Lord Brown, will you tell me about your new book?
0: So my new book, which came out last year, it's called Makes Think Imagine, and it's about civilization. It's about how civilization's developed through innovation and actually engineering at the center between discovery and commerce and humanity. And it's great to discover things, but you have to make something of them. And the more you make of them, people think about things, the more they think, they imagine a great future. And I do think that the future of every nation is written in a book called Research and Engineering and Commerce. And getting those three things working together is a great challenge for all of us. And that's what the book's about. Full of interesting stories. At least I thought they were interesting. So I hope other people find them interesting.
1: We'll put a link to the new book in the show notes. Do you have a personal website and a Twitter feed people might want to
0: check out? I do indeed. Put the Twitter handle on your notes. I also have a charity, uh, the John Brown Charitable Trust. Uh, It's got a great website and uh, that should be put on there as well.
1: Lord John Brown, thank you so much for joining us. I've learned a whole lot from you and I appreciate your time.
0: Thank you very
1: much, Paul. Well, that was cool. What a thrill and an honor to speak to Lord Brown. Uh, I want to thank him not just for his time, but for the graciousness and candor with which he answered those questions. I hope you got a lot out of it. And like I said, if you would, kindly share this with friends of yours on the social media or in private with an email to somebody that you know would get a lot out of it. Let's jump to takeaways. My number one takeaway that I got as an eye-opener from reading The Glass Closet And in this conversation with Lord Brown is the fact that there's a lot of people in our work environment, not just gay people, but underrepresented populations that don't feel safe at work and that can't bring their true selves to work. And that the brain space, the power, the computing power in your skull that goes to self preservation lowers everybody's productivity, that everybody pays a price for it. And that's worth considering. So it makes a lot of sense to actually invest in in environments where everybody feels welcome, where everybody feels safe and doesn't have to worry about self-preservation and they can focus on being their brightest, most creative selves. The second thing I got out of this was the unimaginable complexities of getting fossil fuels out of the ground. This was covered more in his book, Beyond Business, but when he talks about what it takes just to get a company started, just to get a company inked on a contract, In a place like post-Soviet Azerbaijan or in Papua New Guinea or in Colombia, like just to get the entity going is a years long political negotiation that is nothing compared to the technological hurdles that it takes to pull oil from, you know, a mile deep in the ground or however far down it is, I don't remember, through rocks And, you know, crystallized lava. I'm not a geologist. I don't know what it is. I'm just saying it's a pretty big deal. It takes tens of thousands of people. You got to deal with all these complexities, all these externalities. It's kind of mind blowing that we live in a world where we can just drive up to a gas station, pull the handle, fill our car up. Not that you shouldn't be driving an electric car, but you know what I'm talking about Anyway, that was impressed upon me. And at least for the month since I read this book, every time I leave the room, I've been turning the lights off because I'm just reminded that it's not just your oil bill. It's not just how much it costs to put gasoline in your car. It's a cost to the earth. It's a cost to the environment. And we should honor that work by consuming as little of it as we can. Lastly, Here's something I thought was interesting. The most powerful people on the planet are still just people. They might be titans. They might be multimillionaires. They might even be billionaires, but they still have hearts. They still have brains. They have wants. They have fears and they are fragile just like you are. And so before you go tweet what an asshole Jeff Bezos is or, you know, how ungrateful this or that person is. Maybe take a second to think about what keeps them up at night, and you might find a little bit of charity and grace in your day that you didn't know existed. All right, that's it. Wow, I'm the most sensitive guy on the planet, aren't I? I'm glad you stuck with me. Thanks for listening all the way to the end. Mike Carano, make me sound smart.